What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today, we have another Q&A episode, so thank you to everybody who asked a question. We'll get through as many of these as we can in God knows how many minutes, because whatever I say, I'm going to go over. We all know how this goes. So we'll just jump into it, and we'll just see how this goes. Maybe we'll get through all of them. Um, I did a few of these already, so let's see how many we have left. Anyway, cool. Let's jump in. First question, favorite vacation spot? Um, Depends what kind of vacation, if we're looking at like going to travel to a new city to explore, uh, maybe that's in Europe or something, or going to something more out in nature like hiking, or if it's like a beach vacation, that's probably like my least favorite. Um, I'd rather go, I mean, we're, we are doing our dream vacation as our honeymoon. We're going to Africa for, for, for uh, going on a safari for a couple of weeks. Um, and I, I can't think of anything I'd be more excited for. That's, that's amazing. I'm, I'm super pumped. Um, I guess my favorite vacation spots would, are more like, uh, more on the nature side of things. Um, some of the, you know, dude trips that I've gone on in the past are basically just us going to like a national park, either in our country or a different country and doing like a nice week of hiking. Um, we went to Banff a couple of summers ago and it was just unbelievable. It was epic. We did some of the national parks in, in Utah, um, I'd really love to go to Patagonia and do hiking down in Chile. Those are some things like dreams that I have to do. Um, as far as vacations, those are the, the sort of things that are on my list. Uh, I'd like to do a, a Euro trip with Jenna. My family are, are originally from the Netherlands and we did a lot of traveling throughout Europe when I was younger. Um, but I have not been back in my like adult adult life and I'd like to go. I'd like to show Jenna where my family's from. The funny thing we were talking about this the other day, Jenna's favorite flower is a tulip. And the funny thing is like the Dutch are like, we, we don't, we don't have that much, but what we have is the most amazing tulips ever. Uh, and so that's something that I would absolutely love to do with Jenna is to go to the Netherlands and show her the tulip show where my family's from, um, introduce her to my aunt and uncle's family and, and family friends that we have out there. Uh, so definitely something that we're going to do in the future. Yeah, that covers the vacation spot. Um, best gym that you've gone to. Um, Best gym that I've ever gone to. The first one that comes to mind is actually House of Gains, which is 14 minutes from my house right now uh, in Texas, Georgetown, Texas. Um, it is it is my favorite gym. I haven't, I'm not someone who's been to like a million like of these like big crazy gyms that are like world renowned or anything like that. The reason I say it's my it's my favorite is it has, it had the, the widest, like the, the most different equipment that I'd ever seen. It had a lot of like, it was the only gym, I, actually the only gym I've ever been to really, like and, and been a member of that had a pendulum, that had a great hack squat, that had multiple hack squats, that had like old pieces of equipment that you know are like fucking 30, 40 years old, um, which was awesome. You always find some some diamond in the rough there. And so House of Gains, uh, I live, in, I live in, in Texas outside of Austin. Georgetown for me is like a 15 minute drive. Um, it's an awesome place. The only downside is they've been telling me that they're going to get air conditioning for the last several years. And at some point I just, it's Texas heat and it's just like, I'm not enjoying that at all. And so I work out from home now exclusively, but, um, that was a deal breaker for me. You know, Jenna and I, some once in a while we'll, for like pushing legs really hard, we'll do one day there per week so we can go use the pendulum or go use the hack. They have a hip press, which is awesome. They have some cool, um, they have like glute bridge hip thrust machines, like multiple different ones. Like they have like 10 different leg presses. It's wild. Um, so that stuff's really cool. I would go there. I would see like going there once a week for legs to be something that would be kind of fun. Next question. Overhead press is going backwards. One less rep weekly. Four might be better, but really struggling. What are your thoughts? Um, 
a lot of people are like, they say things like, I'm not progressing or I'm going backwards. And they're saying it like, as if it's been this long-term thing. Is it a couple of weeks that this has happened? Is it five weeks in a row? Is it three mesocycles in a row? The shorter the term, the less I would worry about it. Because in the short term, three, and let's say a one to five weeks of this happening, you might just be getting better at the movement. Maybe you're starting to use less leg drive. Like you said, technique might be getting better. A lot of times people use too much leg drive. If you're in my group, that's something I've been harping on a ton. And I wouldn't be surprised if people are moving less load because they're doing it better with less leg drive. So I wouldn't be surprised if that's happening. My, my overwhelming feeling is check back with me in three mesocycles. You know, tell me if this is still happening three mesocycles from now. Uh, essentially, I don't think people are waiting long enough before they're like declaring that they are not progressing or that they are regressing in this case. And so I would hold out a little bit longer keep trying to progress. Um, and then outside of that, it's like, it's kind of uh, trendy is the word that's coming to mind, but that sounds kind of condescending, but to be like, hey, check on your recovery, make sure you're sleeping enough, make sure you're eating enough, make sure you're hydrated. Yes, you should do all of that stuff. But if you're doing those things like decently well, then I would say it's more likely the case that just, I would want you to zoom out and touch base with me and in 10 weeks from now, and, and if you're regressing over that period of time, as, because what I'm saying is over that like 10 to 12, you know, two to four mesocycle period of time, it's likely that your form has stabilized to something that is reproducible week to week, replicatable, and that you can actually assess, okay, that variable is constant. Now I can actually assess whether or not I'm progressing. But as you're working on tech, like as you're working through technique at all, I would throw out the idea of like, it's not apples to apples if your RDL technique is different week to week. You know, if you did 200 for six, and then this week, 200 or, or 180 for six, neither of those tell me necessarily which gave you a better stimulus. Maybe the 180 for six was slower with better range of motion. Maybe you're pausing in that one. You know, that's something we're doing in our mesocycle right now is we're doing pauses in the RDL. And so your weight's gonna go down from when you weren't pausing. So stuff like that, I would say, I'd recommend zooming out. Um, if it's happening over the long term, if it's happening over the long term, I, it would probably fall into the bucket of those recovery variables. Uh, eating enough, sleeping enough, eating enough protein, and potentially needing a deload, potentially, but yeah, that one's a bit of a stretch. I, I don't think over the long term, people won't progress if they're trying hard. It's very unlikely. So you almost wanna be a detective as to like, okay, I'm probably progressing, but what might be masking this progression? And quite often it's, my technique is changing week to week, or it's been changing over time, um, or this just happened one week and I'm, you know, based on acute variables, maybe I didn't sleep well the night before and this workout wasn't great and now I'm jumping off a cliff over, you know, I regressed one week. Um, so my advice would be to zoom out and see how it goes. Alrighty, next question here. Um, I'm eating whole foods, but I'm hungry going to bed and maintaining. I want to maintain, but do I have an adapted metabolism? This is a broad question and I'm just gonna highlight something very clear. You could be at maintenance calories and not feel amazing. And what I mean is that you said I'm eating whole foods, which basically what you're saying is like I'm eating a very a, a roughly higher satiety diet. And so the one thing you are saying is not happening is like, hey Jordan, I'm I'm not. I, it's not that I'm eating at maintenance calories, but I'm eating you know higher palatable, lower satiety foods. I'm eating whole foods here, and I'm at maintenance calories. Why am I still hungry? That's essentially what you're saying. Um, I would get rid of this, like I have an adapted metabolism thing. That's not necessarily what we're talking about here. I would just like, I know kind of where you're going with that. I just wouldn't go down that route. Um, 
I would rather highlight this idea that you could be at maintenance calories. And what I mean by the words maintenance calories is that you're eating enough so that your body maintains its weight, right? That's just what maintenance calories means in this context. I'm eating enough calories so that my body can maintain its weight. I'm eating what my body needs, period. That is not sufficient for you to assume that you will feel awesome and that you won't be hungry. Two things at play here. One, maintenance calories are a range. And so you might be eating at the lower end of your range. I have three three factors that I'll go through here and then we'll kind of move off this. One, maintenance calories are a range. And so maybe you could maintain your, your body weight between 2,000 and 2,200 calories. Maybe you're eating closer to 2,000. You could eat 2,200 calories. That's a little bit of your metabolism's wiggle room. That is within your body's, uh, your metabolism's ability to be flexible and adapt without weight gain, usually through a an increase in subconscious movement, increase and decrease within uh, of subconscious movement. And so it's possible that you could be maintaining a 2,000 and 2,200. And if you're eating at 2,000, then you might feel better at 2,200. That's something that is on the table. That's an option that's on the table. Number two is that other variables that go into hunger and general biofeedback aren't in check. You're not sleeping well. You aren't hydrated. Um, you're stressed out. You're dealing with some sort of external life stressors. Could be menstrual cycle stuff. So other external variables that don't necessarily have to do with your, your metabolism, let's say. Um, I would make sure that I check on those acute variables. I mean, you could be at maintenance calories all you want, but if you don't sleep well, then you're gonna you know have on average more elevated ghrelin, let's say, and just on average not feel as good and on average be a little bit hungrier. Um, same thing with being a little bit less hydrated or inadequately hydrated. Um, you're eating mostly whole foods, so you could, you could say, oh, you're not eating enough protein. It's, you know, that would be more satiating. That is something you could look at if you're eating whole foods, but very low protein. Maybe you could increase your protein intake, and that might be one route for you to uh, acquire a bit more of a satiety or a, side, a satiety effect from your diet. You could look at exercise, you know, I don't know what you're doing for exercise, but there's a, probably a sweet spot of exercise for satiety. Not doing any exercise probably isn't best for like satiety regulation. Uh, doing a F ton of, of exercise, being incredibly super active with ton of high intensity work all the time, probably also exacerbates hunger cues. So I would look at that. Am I doing too much? Am I doing not enough? Um, and you don't need to go, that, that's not something that you need to be like an exercise physiologist to take a look at. Like if you're doing nothing at all, some exercise probably helps with hunger regulation. If you're doing five Peloton high intensity rides per week, four workouts per week, um, 20,000 steps per day, like you're probably doing more than what is best for satiety. You're probably feeling hungrier than uh, you might be with a little bit less. And the third thing to understand is that just because you're at maintenance calories doesn't mean you are going to feel amazing. Let's take an extreme example. Like bodybuilders, when they step on stage, right, and they're they're peeled like to the to the nth degree, they got no body fat. A lot of them are technically right around maintenance calories at incredibly low percent body fat. Just because they're at maintenance calories in that state doesn't mean that they feel great there. There we have. I'm going to direct you to a podcast about body fat set point that I've done that goes through what's called the dual intervention model, which I think is incredibly important to understand here. You can be at maintenance calories, but at a body weight and body fat level that for your genetics doesn't feel great for you. And what that roughly translates to like external applicability to like real life is that not everybody will be able to maintain the same amount of, of the same level of leanness, the same level of comfort. 
And so you might see people are like, wow, like, like for you, it might be really easy to maintain X body weight. It's very intuitive for you because your hunger and satiety signals are really great. Like right now I'm 190 pounds. And I hate using myself as an example here, but let, just like painting an example here. I'm, I'm 190 right now. I've been 220 and I've been 175 in my adult life. Um, and at 175, I was at the end of a cut and I really wanted to maintain as lean as possible. This was a, several years ago. And I found my maintenance calories and I maintained 175 for a while. And I put that at, like asterisk at the end. I maintained it for a while, but I didn't feel good. I knew I was at maintenance calories because over two or three months, like my body weight didn't change. I'm at maintenance calories. I mean, that is literally definition of maintenance calories. Um, but I didn't feel good. Why didn't I feel good? Because I was at a body fat level and I was eating a calorie amount that didn't, mess, didn't match up with my genetic hunger signaling. I know that that sounds a little woo-woo, but not everybody's going to be able to maintain the same level of leanness with the same level of comfort. And so you have, there is, you know, the dual intervention model discusses the fact that there are genetic variables here, but also environmental. So I don't want you guys to think this is all predisposed just based on genetics and you can't do anything about it. It's not necessarily true. There is some part of it you can't do anything about. Um, but I know that at 175, I was peeled, but I was eating maintenance calories. For me, it was like, I don't know, whatever, 2,500 calories. At 175, a certain level of body fatness, very low, 7% maybe. And 2,500 calories, although that yielded maintenance, I felt like shit. I was hungry all the time, very food focused. I didn't feel good. It wasn't intuitive for me. I didn't have any ability to follow my hunger cues because my hunger cues wanted me to eat way more. And so this idea that you could just be at, like now I'm at 190. And at 190, again, just within individuals, just talking about me, other people might be like, well, you're still lean now. It's like, yes, yes, yes. I agree. I agree, by the way. I'm in this context, based on these like forms of genetics, I have an advantage. Uh, I think I've, I have good genetics in this, good in air quotes as like, at 190, my hunger cues match up really nicely um, with this body weight and this body fatness. And I feel much more satiated on at 190 at maintenance calories. So my 175 at maintenance calories didn't feel good. My 190 at maintenance calories, which is more calories, I feel much better. Both people are at maintenance calories. And so it is clear that just being at maintenance calories doesn't tell you how you're going to feel by itself. Obviously, being at maintenance calories, on average, you'll feel better than being in a deficit. Um, but just being at maintenance calories doesn't mean, oh, no matter what body weight and body shape and body composition that I'm at, as long as I'm at maintenance calories, I'll feel great. There are other variables here. So let's move on from that, but hopefully that was helpful. I'm gonna link in the description, uh, link to the Set Point podcast shit, man, I think that that is a podcast more people need to listen to because we are obsessed with being like, oh, that person over there, they maintain this certain level of leanness year round. All I need to do is get there, find my new maintenance, and I'll, you know, ride off into the sunset. That's certainly not the case. Next question. Not a question, just thank you for the exceptional program. First time, I can't wait to go to the gym. Wow, that's awesome. I love that so much for you. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, that's it. I'm really pumped for you. That's fantastic. I'm, I'm glad you're enjoying it. The group program is something I have so much fun with. Uh, seriously, it is. I love coaching one-on-one. -on -one. I love coaching one-on-one. -on -one. I still have quite a bit of one-on-one -on -one clients and I wouldn't trade them for the world. Um, but the group has been another outlet for me and it's been just fantastic working with you all. I really, I gotta tell you guys, I, I love it. Um, and the best is still yet to come. We're still working hard. Next question, when scheduling diet breaks with clients, do you always honor or depend on biofeedback? So 
essentially, how do I go about scheduling diet breaks with clients? It's tricky because here are the facts. The facts are there are no physiological benefits. Listen to me. There are no long-term, long-lasting physiological benefits of a diet break. And what that means is, let's say you've been, you diet for a while. Let's just be very general here. Over time, week after week, consecutive weeks of dieting, you will feel, let's just say very generally, again, worse and worse over time. The leaner you get, the longer you're in a deficit, the harder it gets, the worse you feel, the more tired you are, the hungrier you are. Let's just say on average, all of that stuff's happening. If you take a diet break, the assumption used to be that when you come back from that diet break, you will feel, uh, you will have like, yeah, whatever, I'll use some terminology. You'll have like, you know, uh, reversed some of those negative biofeedback things so that you can then continue dieting without feeling as bad. That isn't a thing. A diet break, meaning a week or so of eating at maintenance calories, let's say, could be other definitions. You will feel better during that week. No shit, Sherlock, you will feel better that week. You're eating more, you will feel better that week. When we see uh, increases in leptin levels, which is like your satiety hormone during that week, they go right back down to your deficit levels the minute you go back to a deficit. And so we look at diet breaks as not a tool for enhancing fat loss, not a tool for you're gonna feel better afterwards. They are a mental and physical break. They are, sorry, excuse me. They are a mental break. They are a psychological break. And if you look at them that way, then you can better assess whether your client needs them. Does your, is your client having, you know, um, is the, are they emotionally in a state where they're like, yo, I really just need a break right now. And when I, and I can come back to this in a week and I can continue, but I'm at a place right now where like, for me, the bed, the benefit of diet break is just like a checkpoint, uh, in a long goal. It's just the idea that humans might do better when you compartmentalize efforts into smaller chunks. And so if you take a big goal and you break it down into smaller goals with breaks, they might end up being more successful because they are viewing their little, it's more of a sprint. It's like four weeks, then I get a break. Four weeks, then I get a break. Four weeks, then I get a break. And that might mean that during those four weeks, they put forth more effort. That, that Again, these are practical potential upsides. Nothing physiological. There's no physio. If you do, if you do four weeks and then one week diet break, four weeks, a one week diet break, four weeks, a one week diet break, that was 12 weeks in a deficit, four times three. It's the exact same thing if all calories are equated for 12 weeks in a deficit. There's no advantage to doing the diet break. The advantage is maybe your client enjoys the process more or hates the process less. And so let's say you've planned a diet break with a client and you say, hey, after about four weeks, we'll consider taking a diet break. <clears throat> but maybe when that time comes, they feel really good and they're in a good rhythm and they have a good rhythm with the kind of foods they're eating. And quite often this, what happens is like by that fourth week, maybe they have a good handle on what their deficit calories look like in terms of eating. They're in a good routine. They've built some consistency. Uh, and maybe they're like, you know, I, I, if there's no real like super advantage, like I'm in a good good rhythm right now. So my advice, when, or at least where I am at with diet breaks these days is I will say, hey, you know, let's say we started your deficit, uh, whatever. Let's say we started your deficit at the first week of your training program and say, hey, towards the end of this training program when training's getting really hard, Let's touch base about how you're feeling and see if there's, you know, if we want to or would maybe benefit from a small psychological break, just, just breaking this up into chunks. And so I will loosely put a diet break on the calendar, say, hey, maybe in peak week when training is really hard, we give you more calories for that week or maybe for just a couple of days, something like that. Just, to, just as like something to look forward to at the end of the tunnel for you to have a week of higher calories. Or 
you use life events. And so it's like, hey, we're doing this de deficit for you know eight to 16 weeks. And over that period of time, you might have a long weekend, you might have a vacation, you might have a, a wedding. Let's lean into those things as far as taking a diet break. So I'm kind of, I, I will loosely have a diet break plan when we start and be like, hey, like, let's check in around this date and we'll put a diet break on the calendar or at least on this call, let's discuss how you're feeling and see if there's a benefit for a diet break. And if you, like, uh, we will block this week out. If you need a diet break, we're taking it here. Uh, just so they know that if, you know, on week three, they're not feeling very good. They're like, oh yeah, but week five, I can take a little breather here. That might be a good thing for them to compartmentalize their efforts and succeed more because they're breaking it up into smaller chunks. But if I have a client who's doing really well, they feel good and they're like, I don't need a break. Like, I, I, I'm lo I'm losing weight. I'm feeling like I'm think the train's moving. I, I wouldn't push them to go take a diet break. I don't think that there's a evidence based reason to do that. Um, any questions? Do I honor? Depends on biofeedback. Definitely depends on biofeedback. I think there's pros and cons to presetting things and auto regulating things. Um, so I like to do a little combination of presetting a discussion about something and then and then leaning more heavily on biofeedback when that time comes. Um, Anything else on diet breaks? The, honestly, dealing with gen pop clients, life events tend to be more practical, a more practical approach. Oh, you have a long weekend, you have family coming into town, you're going on away on a, on a four-day vacation or something, seven-day vacation. Like to me, those are like more realistically times where I'd like to take a diet break. Um, and, and then 99 out of 100 times, somebody has something where we're gonna say, okay, this spot on the calendar, you're going away to Saratoga for four days and you got a wedding and you got family coming in, you guys are... So, uh, whatever you got going on, let's lean into that. Let's do a diet break then. And so that that tends to be more a really more practical approach that, that tends to come up more often, I think. Next question, minimum month, minimum number of months to hire a trainer and be worthwhile. Um, Yeah, that's tricky. It is, it depends. Uh, it just depends on so much. Um, I think a trainer or coach is something that most people would benefit in perpetuity in some way, like forever, um, you know, in some regard. And so you might start your training and coaching with talking and seeing this person very often. And then in the long term, peeling back and having more of somebody just that like is in your corner. I ha I know that as far as I do, I know you said trainer, but as far as something that, I, that I'm thinking of that I do is like, if you've been with me for over, you know, six to 12 months in that six to 12 month range, and I will offer some drop down options for us to stay on for the very long term, but maybe in a lesser capacity, um, because I do believe that I think most people could benefit just from somebody in their corner that they talk to once a month about this. So um, minimum number of months to hire a trainer to be worthwhile. It depends what your goals are. It depends where you are. Do, do, have you ever worked out before? Are you look? what are you, where are you and where do you want to go? That is, I mean, if you were never lifted a weight in the gym and you want to get to a point where you can do this entirely on your own a, a year, um, and it depends who that trainer is and it depends what you ask of them and what they give you and how much education you get. So yeah, I don't know. What is worthwhile to you? What is the goal that you have and where are you and how far are you from that goal? Um, some For some reason, like the idea of hiring a trainer for six months like uh, feels like the bare minimum of like any form of learning that can happen, any form of like meaningful experience that you can get, any form of actual physical change you can get. Um, but that number still seems arbitrary without a ton of context. So yeah, maybe that's helpful. Next question, are we looking for the pump in hypertrophy like uh, in hypertrophy training like Arnold talked about in uh, pumping iron, PI, in pumping iron? Um, so th the pump is, in my opinion, 
we don't want to independently pursue the pump because there are two ways to get a better pump that might be divergent from optimal hypertrophy. The first is training a muscle in the short position. You will get a better pump training a muscle in the short position. But what we know for hypertrophy is generally we wanna challenge muscles at longer lengths. And so if you're like, hey, I'm just gonna do stuff that gets me a better pump, you're gonna train in the short position. Or you'll be generally, you won't even know what you're doing, but you're like, hey, when I do this exercise, I get a crazy pump. Like for me, it's like, um, if I do a pec fly, I get a crazy pump, crazy pump. If I do a 90 degree preacher curl, I get a crazy pump that trains the bicep in a short position. If I do a, 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 a pec deck fly, I get a crazy pump, trains the pecs in the short position. Um, and, and those are fine exercises, by the way. We're not saying that you don't get hypertrophy. You sure as shit do. But if you only did short position exercises because you were only pursuing the optimal pump in and of itself as an independent variable, uh, then you would at some point go, or it would become, your pursuit would become divergent from optimal hypertrophy. The second is you could do higher rep ranges. You know, you're gonna get a better pump from a set of 15 to 30 than you would from a set of five to 15, let's say. And that's not best for hypertrophy to just train in the 15 to 30 rep range. You could argue it is by, if we're being 100% technical, I would say it's suboptimal compared to the 15 to 30 rep range. If you, again, if you were to do it entirely, uh, if we're talking about extremes, I think it's probably best to over time have a little bit of all of it, maybe I would say more skewed in the six to six to 12 rep range, but but some things in the higher rep range as well. What I'm saying is if you only pursue the pump as an end in and of itself, I would say that would take you divergent from optimal hypertrophy. Now, even if you train in the length of position and even if you train in the lower rep ranges, you should be getting a pump. So the way I would use the pump is I would look at it in a beneficial way. It's not something that you are pursuing as an end in and of itself, but for me, it is a proxy that I am working that muscle. And so when I do a set of dumbbell presses, if I got no pump in my pecs after two or three sets at all, I don't feel anything in my pecs, no pump, no feeling of disruption, nothing that's, no feedback that's signaling my pecs are working, then it's really hard for me to say that this is working my pecs. You know, um, that, that example, that example, you know, might be unfair because you're probably gonna work your pecs if you're doing it right. But if you did, let's say, um, if you did a certain back exercise or let's say a certain bicep movement and you do a couple sets and you just don't feel any pump, there's no, like it is a feedback, a proxy for this muscle is working. And so if you do three sets of an exercise that you hope works a certain muscle and at the end of those two or three sets, you don't feel any pump whatsoever in that muscle, I, that would leave clues that maybe it's not the best for that muscle for you or maybe the way you're executing it's not great or the variation you're doing isn't perfect. But to me, the pump is more of a proxy that this muscle is growing. It is a good sign that I'm working what I want to work. If I'm doing an overhead press and I do three hard sets of overhead press and all I feel is a pump in my triceps and I feel no pump in my, in my delts, let's say, then it's really tough for me to be like, yeah, this is a great delt movement for me. It would be really tough to say that or the way I'm doing it is not great for delts. That, that would be something I would have to believe. Hey, this is a really great movement where my triceps are very stimulated, but maybe not that great for delts. And so the pump is something that I would keep in your back pocket as not by itself the thing that you should be pursuing, but as a, a clue of XYZ muscle is working during this exercise. If after I do a few sets, I feel a pump here. I think that that's totally fine. A lot of people are throwing sensation out these days. They're like, oh, fucking doesn't matter where you're feeling it. 
just do it in a way that makes biomechanical sense. Now, I think just doing the exercise or first setting yourself up in a way that makes biomechanical sense for an exercise is the first thing you should do and the most important. But as you do that, as you become more experienced over time and as your technique improves, as you've been doing, like the more experience you get in the gym, the more you can use these proxies of like, yeah, I'm doing this in a way that makes sense, but I don't feel shit after I don't get a pump there. I don't get a feeling of disruption. I never get sore there. And so maybe this isn't the best movement for me when there's another movement that is similar where I get a crazy pump, I get crazy disruption, I get crazy sore, or I get some of those things. And so as you become more experienced, I wouldn't do this as a novice. If you're new to lifting, stop thinking about where you're feeling shit. Start thinking about how am I executing this? Let me make, let me do this in a way that makes is safe and makes biomechanical sense that I'm lined up correctly for the thing that I want to work. After you've been doing that for some time, I think you can fall back and also add in the data that you get from things like pump and soreness and feeling of disruption. God, I'm not getting through all these questions. Who the hell am I kidding? Jesus Christ. We'll go for an hour. We're at at 30 minutes here. Um, Next question. Would moving an exercise up in the order of a workout for a meso help with progression in future mesos? Let's be very clear. You're going to be more likely to progress in things that are earlier in the session and less like the arc. If you graph the likelihood of progression, the stuff that's earlier in the session, you're going to be more fresh for. If I progress on my exercise one and two, I'm going to be more fatigued for exercises three and four. This is a fact. So late in the meso, when I'm fucking fighting tooth and nail to progress on my first, excuse me, my first and second exercise, I might be less likely to progress on exercise three and four, all things being equal. And so... I don't want people to freak out about that. That's not the end of the world. Like generally the stuff that you care about more comes a little bit earlier in the session. Generally, it doesn't need to be like a super hyper focus of I care only about this, it goes first, whatever. That's a general uh, point I would make is like stuff that go, that you like, when it comes to exercise order, ah oh man, I don't want to go too deep in the rabbit hole of this. I've covered it in other podcasts. But when it comes to exercise order, I would look at a couple of things. One, things that you care about more come generally earlier in the session. Number two, things that are more, require more coordination and are more what we would call neurologically complex. Things that are more technique heavy, that have less stability, I'd put them earlier in the session. So like a back squat, I would put earlier and a leg press, I might put a little bit later because you have more stability. The leg press has basically no technique demands, doesn't require any neurological efficiency really. So you could probably still do it really well even when you're a little fatigued. Things like uh, isolation movements, maybe towards the end, but those aren't hard and fast rules. There are times that you put isolation movements first. Um, so your question of would moving an exercise up in the order of a workout for a, a meso help with progression in future mesos? It would, it would. Putting an exercise earlier in a session makes it more likely that you'll progress on that. But that doesn't mean that those exercises that came later in the session, that maybe in a small way, the graph of progression, by the way, guys, you should still be progressing on most things most of the time. It's not like, it's not like, oh, it's it's coming third in the session, so I should never progress on it. Fuck that. You should be progressing on most things most of the time if you are set up correctly, if your recovery is pretty good, if your program is pretty good. I, I'm not setting the bar very high for most of these things. If you're organized pretty well with your training, if you're recovering pretty well, um, if you're not starting your training all the way close to failure. So again, if you're set up with your mesocycle pretty well, you should progress on most things most of the time, not everything all the time. So it's, I don't want you to be like, yeah, I don't worry about, you know, exercises three and four, you know, cause I'm throwing those out cause they come third and four. I'm not going to progress on those. Fuck that. You should absolutely be progressing on those things for sure. But just generally the arc of that progression will be less upward 
it should still be upward generally over time, but it might be a little bit less upward, right? That curve is probably, you know, go, you know, whatever, goes up less. Let's not, let's not get too complicated with it. Um, so yeah, it would help with progression, but you're always making trade-offs. And so if you move the, if you move this exercise up, that means you're moving something down. And so it, it should reflect a balance of, hey, so I was talking to my barber yesterday actually about his exercise order. Um, and something just came to mind to me that like most people, most of you guys can follow your intuition and do this pretty well. If you look at your workout and you're like, wow, doing it in this order fucking sucks. Like if you're like, if you do back squats last, like that just sucks. Like intuitively, you all know that showing up for heavy back squats at the end of a leg day, that intuitively makes no sense. You don't want to do that. That, that Your intuition knows that that would suck. And your intuition knows that, hey, if I'm gonna do back squats, I wanna do them first. I care about my strength, I care about my performance, and I also wanna get these out of the way because doing them last kind of blows. And so just that look at your workout. If you look at your workout, and I'll use my group program. If you guys look at my program and you're like, you know what? I would enjoy this workout more if I moved these two things around. You have my 100% blessing to do that. That personal preference to me, ranks higher than any physiological argument of like, ah, oh, physiologically, you want to work from the short position to the length of position. It's like, dude, if you're like, I hate doing these first, I love doing them third. Freaking do it. That's amazing. There's like basically no trade-off. There's really just like not a big difference whatsoever. And so a lot of people, just based on personal preference and intuition of, of what would make you enjoy this workout more, what would make you work harder in the workout, what would make you show up more to do it because you hate it less, um, all good pieces of intuition to help you guide yourself on, on exercise order. Next question, you're a creature of habit and your routine is going to be different the next two weeks. What are your plans? Yes, yeah, so I'm traveling the next two weeks. Um, I'm going out of the country two weeks in a row for the weekend, and it's it's really wild. With work, it's crazy. With my workouts, that's a, a variable to consider. What are your plans? My plans are to have a damn good time, uh, to not worry about my nutrition and training at all. It's not that I'm gonna, like, I say not worry about it. That doesn't mean, like, just eat pizza, pasta, pasta and candy all week every time I go away. That just means not give myself any, like, I need to eat in a certain way. Um, I still want to feel good, right? I still want to feel good and enjoy where we're going. Um, I still want to eat the cultural foods where we're going, and I still want to just generally have a good time. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not setting myself up with a, in a stressful environment, guys. What you do most of the time matters way more. I know that generally, I eat a very nutritious diet. Generally, uh, generally, I train consistently. I do some cardio. You know, like my routine is 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 good. I don't need to worry about three days off going on vacation here and three days over there. Like this, that's not what matters. Like I know that what I do most of the time matters more than what I do some of the time. And what I do most of the time is is my normal routine that I enjoy very, very much that allows me to feel really good. And I'm just not, my muscles, I'm not gonna shrivel up to a raisin. I'm not gonna gain a hundred pounds if I just go and have a good time for three, four, five days a week, two weeks, whatever. If what I do most of the time is in check. Um, so, Specifically, what am I doing with work? I, I I'm gonna what what I always say. My dad tells me he's like he's like a, the downside of what you do, Jordan, is you can never take two weeks off, um, and that is true. I, I can't. I, and not only can I not do that, you could say I could do that, but I wouldn't want to. I love what I do. I love taking care of my clients. I love knowing that people are on track. I hate, you know, I pride myself on being there, you know. Um, and so what I will do is I will turn my work down to a minimum effective dose, and I call it like. Uh, this is, there's a stupid, I don't know how many people listen to 
or going to know what I'm talking about. There's a Marshawn Lynch. If you guys don't know who Marshawn Lynch is, he's a running back. He was a running back for the Seahawks for a long time. Um, and he has like a, an interview where he's like talking about, I just, whatever, I don't know why I'm even going down this route, but there's an interview where he's talking about what like young players in the league should be focused on, like like getting their, like making sure they have their finances in order when they get their first uh, um, paycheck and their first, their first contract. And he says, uh, he's just a funny dude. And he's like, take care of y'all chickens. And what he means is like, take care of like your, your finances, make sure that that's in order um, and, and take care of like that, the baseline, what's important right now and get that shit together. Like take care of your, like the, the, the finances sort of thing and make sure that those, you know, uh, systems are in place, right? Um, take care of your body, take care of whatever he's taking. He's, he's essentially saying, take care of like your baseline things that are really important. And for me, I always like, I, I just took that. I don't know why, but like for me, take care of my chickens is like, is like take care of the people who are currently paying me, my clients, make sure that if I'm doing a minimum effective dose, it's take care of those people first. People that are paying you, people that are counting on you, people that are you are there for already, current customers, clients, group members, those people get you. Everything else is superfluous. And for me, that's social media, that's posting podcasts, that's recording podcasts, that's posting on Instagram, that's um, going on podcasts, that's maybe education work where I'm like reading and I'm listening to educational stuff and I'm doing, I'm listening to research reviews and I'm doing a course. Like those to me are all extra. And so when I go away this week, next week, I'm going away after that. And then I'm going away to Africa. Um, I never travel by the way. So this is a crazy time in my life. But to me, I will take care of my group. I will answer all form videos, 100%. I will answer all group text messages. I will answer all my one-on-one clients. I will do my check-ins for those one-on-one clients. I will answer their form videos. I will make sure I'm taking care of the people who take care of me. And everything else is superfluous. So for the next couple of weeks, you won't see me on social media very often. What I will be posting is content that I've already created knowing that I'm going away. I'll maybe post a couple times a week instead of you know 10 times a week. Maybe it's three or four times a week. Uh, I will post one podcast a week of stuff I've already recorded, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time on things that are superfluous. So for me, it's about finding what is my minimum effective dose of work, take care of my chickens, take care of the people who take care of me, um, and making sure that I'm, I'm and a lot of people are like, Jordan, go away. You know, maybe it's your honeymoon. I don't want to hear from you. Some people, I appreciate you. I appreciate that that's your take, but, but I love what I do. And I don't want to be taking advantage of the people who take care of me. And to me, it's not, it's cliche, but it is taking care of the people who take care of me, my group program, my one-on-one clients. It's not work. I, I derive a lot of pleasure from it. And I drive a lot of pleasure from, from working together and knowing my people are on track and knowing that, that I'm putting out a good product and that they're taken care of. And so uh, when, when I do go away, I've moved my Zoom call with my group for when I get home. I get home on Saturday night this week and I'll be in Zoom Sunday afternoon. I'm gonna do my check-ins on Sunday. Then I go away next week on Thursday. And so I'll do my Zoom again on that Thursday, let's say. And then I'll do my check-ins on when I get back. And so I'm gonna move things around, but... I definitely will reduce my work. I'll turn the volume down to a minimum effective dose. I don't know how many of you guys care about what I do with work, but you won't see me as much on social media. You won't see me as much on podcasts, but because those are, although those are passion product pro, uh, projects and they are a pursuit of building my brand, but they're not taking care of my chickens. Um, and I, and then what I mean by that is just like my group members, my, my one-on-one clients, I got you. I will be there for you guys in the same way I always am. Um, 
And I think that a lot of people who are in this industry need to acknowledge what those different buckets are. And if you're like gonna be someone who's traveling, like what are the things that you wanna make sure you keep doing? What are the things that you can turn down for a little bit just to keep that work-life balance in check? Cool. <clears throat> um, Next question. Oh, wow. We are not moving through these fast. That That is something... Um, not a question, Jordan. Thank you for all you do in the fitness industry. I appreciate that. Um, I, I just hit 30K followers on, on Instagram and I was thinking to myself that the app has changed over the years. It's like, it's a different space now. It's it's harder to grow. My you know my account grows much more slowly. Um, I'm greatly, well, what I'm saying is even in all of that, if you're a content creator, you know it's very different than it was two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, a year ago. Um, the space is incredibly polarizing. You have to say crazy shit to get, you know, any engagement on social media. Um, but when I hit 30K the other day, I just, whatever, it's a stupid, it's a, it's arbitrary, but just seeing that was like, I feel very appreciative for all of you guys who listen to the podcast, who interact with me on social media. And and I, frankly, I answer, I will answer every DM forever. I will try and answer with voice notes. I'll try and be thorough with you guys. I wanna be there. I wanna be someone who you can communicate with. I don't wanna be like a, somebody who like, you're speaking to my secretary, you know what I mean? Like, or my assistant, like I wanna be answering the questions. I want you guys to be able to connect with me. Um, and so I, I, I'm so appreciative of, of what social media has been able to do for me and my brand, but shit, man, it would be nothing without you guys. The podcast would be nothing without you guys. So I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful for that. And, and I always wanna be somebody that you guys can communicate with and ask questions to um, because the, the, this only exists because of you guys supporting me in some way. So, so thank you for that. Um, previously it was N1. What's your next big nerd drive? I will tell you my big nerd drive right now is cardiovascular training. Now, I am not interested in being an endurance athlete. I am first and foremost someone who cares about health and uh, I certainly love hypertrophy training for the health aspects. I would say that the aesthetic benefits of, hy of hypertrophy are very much cherry on and sprinkles on top. I think from a health perspective, getting stronger, building muscle, um, building confidence, all of that, the health benefits of that are just never ending. The aesthetic benefit of hypertrophy training is almost just very much second fiddle. And it's awesome for that too. And it is a way that you can you know, get clients what they want with what they need. And that's awesome. But I'm nerding out so freaking hard on cardiovascular and energy system training because right now in my life, my pursuit is being as healthy and robustly healthy as possible for as long as possible. You know, I'm not jumping down this route, but let's let's let let me just say this. Um, I'm not I'm not saying that I'm gonna like uh, like one thing that okay whatever I'll just say it. like something that I carry with me at all times is the the knowledge that I have the I have all of the Alzheimer's genes. I have all of the Alzheimer's. My family I have all the APOE genes. I have like all four of the the. It's the worst it could be from a genetic perspective. I have many cases of Alzheimer's in my family, um, and I and I've gotten genetic testing done. And as far as the genes, the deck is stacked against me for Alzheimer's, and that's something I think about like a, a lot. I mean, if those of you have family members or, or who are who are going or have gone through it, it's 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 the worst. I mean, it's not the worst. I mean, there's no the worst. They're all awful. You know, diseases, chronic diseases, or neurodegenerative diseases. They're all awful. But it is, it's it's really bad. And it, it is, I could, I don't want to get overly emotional right now, but it's something I think about a lot. And so, especially as my parents get older, um, you know, I've been having a, a ton of talks with my dad who's in his late 60s about, about getting in better shape. He's in decent shape, but he's like, a, you know, I he's like 
not physically fit. He's not overweight or has obesity, but he's not physically in great shape. And so, you know, we've been talking a lot about that. And I just, I'm just so focused these days on being as fit and healthy as I can for as long as possible. And the truth is some direct cardiovascular training is likely necessary for that optimal health. Um, you know, I've, I've said in the past that like just lifting, walking and having a nutritious diet and not too much body fat covers most of your bases. And I think it does cover most of your bases. But the pursuit of optimal health is the one time I might tr- I might bleed into like this optimal range of like, I, I really do care about being optimally healthy. Um, and so this pursuit of better mitochondrial health that you can get via, let's say, zone two training is something I'm nerding out a ton about. I will have experts come on the podcast and talk about it very soon. I'm gonna have my friend Brian talk about it because it's something he and I are nerding out a ton. As people who are obsessed with hypertrophy, where are we on the stance of incorporating direct cardio. I think that that's something, that a conversation is gonna be freaking awesome. Um, and so that's something that I'm very, very passionate about th- these days, learning a ton about, listening to a ton of podcasts, reading a ton of, I know that I have a decent background on energy system training, but on a, on a cellular, on a cellular, cellular level, what is happening? Why is this helpful? How do we get it? How do we measure it? How do we know we're getting better? We're getting better over time are things that I'm incredibly interested in, in and, uh, when my treadmill gets here on Monday, which we'll talk about, I will begin a little bit of a self-study, a self-experimentation, um, and I'll keep you guys in the loop with all that. So very excited about that. What do we have? We're 45 minutes. Um, okay. Um, women are more likely to ask for help or hire a coach. How to get more men to participate? Oof. Oof. First of all, that's a fact. Uh, one of the reasons I, I think women are just a superior species in most cases, they're just they're less egotistical and more likely to ask for help. And that I'd say 90% of my clientele are women. I, I actually have quite a bit of men actually in my one-on-one and, and probably about 10 or so, 10 to 15% of my group are men. And I and I love seeing my guys in there. I freaking love that. I actually love working with men too. Um, how to get more men to participate. I think we're, I think we are generally as a society trending in more of a, in a direction of untangling the stigma of men being like needing to never ask for help, whether that's going to therapy or just asking for a coach or asking for help or just being more vulnerable. I think we are moving in that direction of destigmatizing a lot of that. Like, you know, I don't want to get into like toxic masculinity or any of that stuff, but I think like the, the traditional very like long-term traditional sense of like what a man should be, like what's a masculine man who's like supposed to have it all figured out and some of these like stereotypes of what a man's supposed to be. I think we are breaking those down. So I think we are trending in the right direction, but I think it's important to continue to normalize this. And and maybe one of the best ways we can do is talk about it more. And maybe I can do a a decent job as a content creator with an audience of like, talking about or bringing men on the podcast and having more, you know, spotlight on this. I think that that normalizing it is our best chance of doing that. Um, I had a, I was talking with, with Buddy or Macros. We were, we were working on our coaching coaches seminar. We were talking about, I hope they don't mind me sharing, but we were talking about like, uh, you know, how to get your husband to go to therapy. You know, not that, not that just like, there's like how to get them, how to talk to them about this being important, you know? Um, and, and I've been going to therapy every week for the last two years. And, you know, just kind of sharing my experience of like, you know, how you could communicate that to somebody who, you know, again, I don't want to generalize as men of like, oh, men are, men think they have it all figured out. They don't need to go to therapy. But that is a generalization that I think holds true in a high percentage of cases. I don't think it's only men for sure, but I think it does hold true in a lot of cases. Uh, And so, 
Yeah, I think I think we need to do a better job of normalizing this stuff. You know, the question kind of is how do we normalize this stuff? But I think talking about it more is a huge, huge way we can do that. And I actually like this question a lot. I think uh, I have a perfect person in mind to come on and talk about this. So awesome. Next question, rear delt dumbbell row, wrist neutral or wrists down, which would be pronated or wrists neutral. So really quickly, the grip that you use for a pulling movement is by itself irrelevant, right? What you do, you guys can't see me if you're not on YouTube, but what you do with your your wrist and your forearm does not affect your back muscles. None of your back muscles attach at the elbow. None of them attach at the wrist. So what you're doing here with your wrist and your with your wrist, let's say, and your forearm has nothing to do with your back muscles. Now, you said rear delt row. So what is a rear delt row? Real to, to target the rear delts, generally speaking, you want your arms roughly, let's say, 45 degrees off the torso. What that means is not flared up all the way at like 90 degrees, like a T-shape. If you're not looking at YouTube, like a T-shape, that would be more for the upper back and not hugged at your sides, which would be like tucked to the sides, which would be more targeting the lats. You want somewhere in between that, which is quite comfortable grip, by the way, which is like, you know, 45 degrees up off the body. It doesn't matter what your wrists do. As long as that's where your elbows are and you're pulling in that range of motion, you're pulling your elbows far behind your body, your rear delts are gonna work just fine. However, you probably, for comfort's sake, so we're not talking about optimally stimulating the rear delts, we're talking about comfort. You probably want your wrist and hand position to match your elbow position. And so what that means is to have a neutral wrist position at all times, right? Compared to your elbow. So a neutral wrist position compared to where your arm is in space. And so I'm gonna give you guys, I'll talk you through it. Imagine that your thumbs are up. So imagine you're making two thumbs up. If you're gonna use a, if you want your elbows to be flared, I would have my thumbs pointing in. I would use a pronated grip because that is a more neutral grip given where my arm is in space. If I want my arms tucked to the sides, that would mean I would want this neutral grip would be with my thumbs pointing up. If I want a rear delt row, keeping that neutral grip position, my thumbs would be pointing like in and up towards my face. As my elbows go up 45 degrees, I would keep that neutral position. And so it's like, if you can match your arm position with a whatever neutral means in that position, it will be most comfortable for you. And so you said, rear delt DB row, should my wrists be down, which is pronated, or neutral, which technically means your palms facing each other, I would say a semi-neutral grip. A semi-neutral grip on a diagonal that matches where your arms are. If you're not watching on YouTube, it would be something like this because that matches where my elbows are in space. And as I bring my elbows up, I might move into a more pronated grip. And as I bring my elbows down to my torso, I might more work more in what's called, you know, what we would traditionally call, traditionally call a neutral grip with your palms facing each other. Um, so hopefully that covers your question there. Um, best exercises to strengthen the low back. I always do lats and upper back, but low back is weak. Um, hinge patterns, squat patterns. So squatting, deadlifting, RDLing, uh, great for working the lower back. Um, a lot of people are obsessed with 45 degree hip extensions for the glutes, but you could do a 45 degree back extension where you target the lower back. And I think if you really are looking to hypertrophy your back, build muscle in your back, which in turn will build strength, I would make sure that you're doing a couple of things. One would be heavy hinging. I say heavy, I just mean working close to failure. I don't mean you need to do heavy set of singles or power lift or anything like that. Work hard with hard sets of hinge patterns, deadlifts, RDLs. Work hard with sets of squats um, and maybe do some isolation work, which would be something like um, 
uh, a 45 degree back extension. If you YouTube it with that verbiage, 45 degree back extension, you will see it's a slightly different technique than if you're tar targeting the glutes. Um, and those would be things that I would do. You could also maybe talk about things like stability exercises for the core, like pal-off presses, dead bugs, stuff like that. That isn't technically working your lower back, but it might be in some ways helpful uh, for whatever you think you're weak at. So you're like, oh, my lower back is weak. Maybe your core generally is weak. Um, which I don't think everyone needs to be doing direct core work. I think that you could do heavy hinges, heavy squats, um, and work your lower back in this case and do just fine. But I don't think doing like, you know, plank variations and pal off presses and stuff like that, dead bugs, hollow holds, I don't think that those are a bad idea. I think that those could aid in this overall process as well. Substitution for squats due to knee problems. Um, yeah, I would work with a qualified physical therapist to start. And what I'm going to recommend potentially is not medical advice. Let's not get it twisted. This is just generally advice that I would want you to maybe take to your physical therapist to talk about. I would, I don't know what knee problems you have. And so it depends what those knee problems are. Like maybe it's a work through it. And I don't mean work through the pain. I mean, maybe you want to be doing squats, but maybe at a different load right, in a different rep range with a different tempo at a different RPE to expose those joints and muscles to what they can handle right now and then build that up and get stronger in those movement patterns. Maybe in the short term, you want to adjust how you're doing that, like maybe with a level of knee flexion that doesn't cause as much discomfort. So I don't know if you need to replace squats. Maybe you need to re replace how you're doing them in terms of technique or replace the load management side of things where maybe we wanna break this down to a lower RPE for now and build up those joints, muscles, tendons by meeting them where they're at with what they can handle and slowly increasing the tension and the stimulus and the stress over time. That That is, unless, unless you have some real structural issue where you need surgery or something, if you want to make sure that you don't have knee problems long-term, I wouldn't replace that stuff. Um, I just would maybe adjust how you're doing them. Uh, low bar versus high bar squat. Why would you choose one over the other? Uh, okay, so this is similar to the grip. It's similar to the grip discussion. Like low bar and high bar by itself doesn't tell me a whole lot. A low bar squat makes it more likely that you can perform a hip dominant technique more comfortably. So a low bar squat, you might be stronger in if you adopt a hip dominant technique pattern, moving your hips back more knees traveling forward less. And so if you're looking to target the glutes and do more of a hip dominant squat, then a low bar a low bar position can be more comfortable, maybe for some people. Um, and if you are looking to target the quads, again, this is more based on a little bit of moment arms, uh, but also just based on a redistribution of center of mass. Um, I don't wanna be overly simplif simplifying it here, but if you're gonna do a low bar squat, I wouldn't do a low bar squat to target your quads. I would do a high bar squat and, a, and I would do a high bar squat with a quad dominant technique, and I might consider a low bar squat uh, position for more glute dominant squat, more hip dominant squat. Um, if you're not doing it for anything, you're just trying to lift as much weight, chances are most people will be a little bit stronger with a low bar position just because of the amount of, of other posterior chain muscles that you can incorporate there. Um, and so it's less about the bar position, a little bit more about the, the technique that you can adopt with those, with those uh, bar positions. Um, and so I don't want to oversimplify, but maybe we keep it simple and we leave it at that for now. Uh, let me see what we got. Not too much time. Is there any of these that I think are really, I really need to hit here. Um, when recording dumbbell exercises, is it the total weight or the dumbbell weight? Let's be very clear guys. When you are tracking your lifts, 
This matters just for you. The point of tracking your lifts is not so you can win a prize comparing yourself to others. I'm not, sorry, that came, that came off super douchey. What I mean is that you're not comparing these numbers to anybody else. The reason for tracking your lifts is that you, when you show up next week, you look at your log and you know what it means. That's all that matters, right? It's the same way if like you track in kilos or pounds, like who cares? Like you need to know what it means. So if you did dumbbell presses with 35s and you track it as 70 pounds, I did 10 reps of 70 pounds, that, that's fine with me. As long as when you show up and you see 70 pounds, you know what it means, right? As long as you track it the same way and you know what it means, standardizing it over time, that's what matters. Um, if you track it as 35 pounds, that's great. Guess what? As long as you know what it means when you show up next week, that's what matters. Um, me personally, when it's a dumbbell, I track a single dumbbell because that's just a little quicker for me. I see 10 reps, 35. I know that it's, I don't have to do any like, even if it's a simple math equation of divided by two to figure out the dumbbell weight, I, I, it's just one less step. It's like 35 pounds. Okay, 35s were the dumbbells I was using. When I'm doing stuff with dumbbell, uh, with barbell, I tend to track the whole weight. Um, and when I'm using a Smith machine, I actually tend to, because we don't really know what the Smith weighs, I tend to just track what is on one side of the bar. I don't know why. I think that that's just easily for my brain. So let's let's say I'm doing a Smith machine barbell press with 45 pounds on each side. I actually track it as 45 because it's it's not 90 pounds. You could track it as 45 or 90, but what I wouldn't do is track it as 135, which would be what it would weigh if the Smith machine was 45 pounds, like a traditional barbell. It just isn't that. So for a Smith machine, I usually just track what's on one side of the bar. And if it says 90, I know next week that I put 90 pounds on each side. For me, that's a very easy transition into my workout for next week. Um, so whatever you track it as, there's no right or wrong, just track it in a way that makes sense for you and keep that method for the long term. Um, how can a PT get certified to give nutrition advice and meal plans? It's a common misconception. First of all, you need a, it's a common misconception that only a dietitian can, it's a common misconception that only dietitians can help people with nutrition. I'm not, I'm not saying that there isn't a legal boundary here of like giving a, a, a meal plan that that person must follow as a prescription. That is reserved for dietitians, RDs. If you're giving somebody a prescriptive diet meal plan that they must follow for a clinical thing or for any other sense, in a, you must follow this as a prescription. It's a, di- it's a registered dietitian is the only person who can do that. But if you are saying, hey, this is like a sample meal plan of like something that might work where we can generate some ideas that represents, you know, your nutrition intake that you need, that represents, you know, macronutrient intake that you need, micronutrient, micronutrient intake that you need, it, I don't, you don't need to legally be an RD to, to do that. If, I, if I'm wrong on that, I, I really don't think I'm wrong on that. But if I am wrong, I apologize. I really don't think that. Should you do that if you're not an RD? I, I think you need to, you need to be qualified. You should be qualified to do that. In my opinion, is like doing some, at least some extensive education on this topic. So your question was, um, how can a PT get certified to give nutrition plans? I wouldn't even say how can a cert- how can a PT get certified. I would say just acknowledge that you need to go get certified. You need to go learn about this shit. I don't. This isn't like. I, you know, read a book on nutrition one this one time and I'm now gonna start coaching people. Like, go get certified, go do precision nutrition, go do Mac nutrition. I love Mac nutrition. I think it's the gold standard of like non-traditional academic uh, pathways to being qualified to work with people on nutrition. Precision nutrition, I have not, I've read the, I've read their textbook. 
Um, and it's great. It's also very high quality. So um, do a certification before you do this, right? Is it legally, or is it legal for you to, to give somebody some idea about nutrition and, and even provide them with sample meal plans and have that discussion? I don't think it's illegal, but it's, 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 it's disingenuous. It's, it's, um, it's not right in my opinion, but legally, I don't think anyone's coming after you, but it's, it's not the right thing to do. It's not helping people go get certified, do precision nutrition, do Mac nutrition, go on to be a registered dietitian, uh, or nutritionist, right? Go do those things. Uh, all right, we'll do one more. Um, when progressive overloading, how many reps should you be able to do before adding on more weight? So I'll just say that there are a million ways that you can start to apply progression. What I would recommend is some is is what or what I do recommend or what I utilize is called double progression, not because it is physiologically superior, but because I can articulate it to you very simply right now. So when you're overloading, how many reps should you be able to do before adding on more weight? My advice is be able to do the top of your given rep range on all sets that you are doing and then go up and load and then work back to that point. So if you're doing three sets of eight to 12 of a dumbbell press, stick with the same weight and increase reps week to week until you can do 12 on all three sets, 12, 12, 12. When you can do 12, 12, 12, go up by the smallest increment of load available and then work back up to 12, 12, 12 and repeat that process forever and ever and ever and ever and ever until you're mega jacked. Um, it's called double progression and you will max out the reps across all sets and then go up by the, in my, I'm using this, I'm ad-libbing here, the smallest increment of load that is available. So if it's a two and a half pound dumbbell jump, take it. If it's a five pound dumbbell jump, take it. If it's a one pound fractional plate, you could take it. Um, if it's the next clip down on the, on the cable stack, take it. Um, so I think that that is a really clean and simple articulatable, which is not a word, but um, way for you to understand how to do this. And it's so freaking simple. And we use it in the group program with a ton of success. I use it in my program. It's something that you do not need to think about. If you did, if you're doing three time eight to 12 dumbbell press and you did 12, 11, 10 last week, you don't need to think about going up and wait because you didn't do 12, 12, 12. Only when you do 12, 12, 12 will you go up and wait. You don't need to think about it. It's clear cut. It's objective. It's not subjective. You don't have to think about it. And so I love that about it. It's like, hey, I, I, did you do 12? Someone's like, should I go up and wait? I'm like, what'd you do? Top of the rep range across all sets. They're like, no, not yet. I'm like, great. So not yet. Don't go up and wait. So excellent. I appreciate you guys asking questions. There's definitely some other ones on here. I'll see if I can get those maybe over to you on Instagram. But uh, thanks for listening, guys. Uh, I will see you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.